They were high school sweethearts that got married and had a kid. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of D.C. they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. We have a special episode today all about the earned income tax credit and uh, the phased-in semi-refundable tax credits more generally. It sounds very boring, but it's actually a key uh, question about how to design income support going forward. It's going to be an issue in the campaign, an issue in 2021, um, and I've got some some top experts uh, on the on the subject here. We've got a smart policy man, Kevin Warner, knows a lot about the EITC, and then we've got uh, soon to be a University of Utah uh, professor in the economics department, Marshall Steinbaum. Um, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. All right. So for starters, let's, uh, you know, explain the EITC in, in the simplest way as we can. Uh, maybe have Kevin do that. You know, uh, how does it work? What are the phase-ins, the phase-outs? And, you know, just sort of get a, get a basic primer on it. Sure. So the earned income tax credit is a refundable tax credit, um, for low-income workers, uh, where um, the more for a, a certain amount of earnings, the more you earn, the more you get back in credit. Uh, and even if you owe zero taxes, you'll still get the earned income tax credit. That's the refundable part. Um, and so it phases in uh, for um, a certain amount of income, depending on the. Um, amount of kids you have it's uh usually around six to eight thousand dollars is the phase in and so during the phase in period for every dollar you earn you get um a certain amount more of the earned income tax credit uh, the phase in rate is usually uh about 15 percent, i think for people with uh with one kid and then there's a flat portion where the amount of uh, earned income tax credit you get is stable uh, even as you earn more and then there is a phase out portion where as you earn more the amount of earned, earned income tax credit you get decreases and then at uh, around 30 to forty thousand dollars depending on how many kids you have um, you the, the amount of earned income tax credit you get uh, comes down to zero very exciting. That's a very exciting benefit. Uh, it's what kind of thing that would fit well on a, a campaign bumper sticker. Uh, <laughs> you know, just draw the grass with the four different lines. And I think people would really love that. I can see why it is such a popular benefit. But I mean, I joke, but like it, it is a surprisingly popular benefit in the uh, policy world. So popular, in fact, by my count, we have four bills or proposals that are floating around right now that are basically copycats of the EITC. We have Kamala Harris's lift credit. We have Cory Booker's rise credit. 
We have the Gain Act, which is Sherrod Brown and Rokana. Then we have the Working Families Tax Relief Act, which is supposed to have been some sort of consensus uh, melding of all these various uh, proposals together. It seems like every week we get a new proposal like this. This this is the way we're doing income support. It's got to phase in. It's got to be a refundable tax credit. So I'm wondering on the political side, why, why is this the case? Why is everything Tink putting this out? Marshall, I think you, you, you know the internals of this better than perhaps anyone. Yes. Well, I wasn't present at the creation of the EITC by a long shot, but I have been privy to the uh, somewhat surprising longevity of it in the public debate. So the way I would characterize its popularity among the wonk class is um, that it s- deals with the problem, I put problem, quote unquote, that supposedly the political world won't tolerate benefits that are not conditional on work uh, because voters are supposedly unwilling to uh believe that that the the beneficiaries of uh, benefits that aren't conditional on work deserve those benefits. And so they've concocted this EITC that is hooked to whether you're working or not to try to create some sort of um, uh, distinction between the deserving and undeserving in terms of the beneficiary population. So that was the initial um, impetus for it. it uh, I mean, it, it, it's a program that originates, I believe, in the 70s, but it got a lot bigger in the 1990s when um, the you know quote-unquote welfare reform was enacted. Uh, welfare was cash benefits that were not conditional on work. Supposedly, that was causing people the beneficiaries not to work um, and creating a culture of poverty, you know, in the fraught language of that era. Um, And the EITC effectively replaced that uh, uh, cash benefit with uh, this tax credit that's conditional on work. And I would say the reason why it has such longevity in among the wonk class um, is that it was designed as I think, Matt, you've, you've discussed elsewhere as uh, to sort of maximize the poverty beneficiary or poverty reduction benefit by moving the maximum number of people over the federal poverty line. So people who are just below the line were moved, are moved, they participate in the EITC uh, to, you know, just above the poverty line. So by that standard, it looks like a highly successful public policy. And then because it sort of has this kind of bipartisan appeal, you know, right-wing people like it because it rewards work, left-wing people like it because it's supposedly redistributive, although I think we'll get into exactly how redistributive it is. Um, you know, that kind of magical bipartisan policy consensus um, where, you know, obviously is is hard to find in the contemporary political debate and therefore the wonk people who, who you know, get grants that are conditional on um, supporting um, things that have bipartisan appeal um, look to the ITC as something to expand. So I think one of the interesting aspects of all of the uh, proposals that Matt just uh, listed off is, um, you know, they're really not about uh, redistribution at the bottom and they're not about poverty reduction. They're, now there's this, these expansions are being pitched as solutions to wage stagnation, to middle class wage stagnation. So it's a vast, it's increased or expansions of the policy way up the income distribution to benefit um, people um, in the middle who've you know greatly have been harmed by uh, the poor performance of the labor market over the last 20 years. Um, and this is a very strange policy to enact in order to treat the is- issues of wage stagnation and the disempowerment of workers in the workplace. The only reason why people are doing that, to my mind, is because it sort of has this bipartisan magical fairy dust going back to the 90s. Yeah, didn't uh, who was the economist I saw on Twitter actually call it fairy dust? I think you were in this thread. It was uh, who's the guy that does the like disability is 
uh, causing people to drop out of the labor force. Do you know who I'm talking about? He does some of the minimum wage studies as well. Um, um, he's a famous guy. I mean, David Otter. That, yes. Uh, sort of, he doesn't, uh, is that who it is? Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 I think he said uh, it was fairy dust in okay. the sense that it was a self-funding due to increase in labor force participation, which increases tax take. And then okay. so it has no net fiscal charge, but, uh, and, you know, improves uh, all these people's lives okay. and so on. I mean, so it's not so. true that it has no net fiscal charge. Not that that's the metric by which we should evaluate sure, it. Yes. Policy is no, no. I think by... I, I think it's one of the most expensive safety net programs, if yeah. you could call it a safety net program. I yeah. think it reduces tax revenue by something around $60 billion yeah. a year. I, I, yeah. I, I've seen a couple. So they, they do this dynamic scoring. I don't know if you've heard of this. Uh, um, <laughs> really, really, please, yes. please tell us how this works, Pat. Right? <laughs> no, I actually have not looked into this, but a couple of people I've seen online, and I, I've seen a few papers that were titled this, and like, for one reason or another, the idea is that if if it increases labor, if it increases employment and hours worked by X amount, then you know it's it funds itself because those individuals pay more tax. It seems a little confusing to me because like, well, no, it doesn't more work I mean you you're paying them more? But I guess the idea is well, in the alternative, they wouldn't have worked that hour at all, and you are still getting their Medicare tax and their Social Security tax and, and, and that, that sort of thing. So th- there are people who say that, and he seemed to be one, one of them. But um, yeah, Well, I think this gets to a larger point here, which we should absolutely discuss, uh, which is the uh, somewhat perverse kind of welfare economics or wel- welfare philosophy of the EITC. In my mind, you know, when we talk about um, welfare effects and economics, uh, that usually pertains to essentially making sure that people aren't forced to do something that they wouldn't otherwise by, quote unquote, the state, by some distortion. So the idea, at least when you're talking about rich people or middle class people, is, you know, I was, uh, you know, working this much and through it should, this, the tax policy shouldn't cause me to work less than I would have worked otherwise, or to the extent that it needs to be, that tax policy needs to be distortionary, it should be as undistortionary as possible. That's sort of the welfare metric uh, when we're talking about uh, rich people. Um, when we're talking about poor people, on the other hand, apparently economists and the policy world has no problem whatsoever saying that poor people ought to work more, that work, poor, poor people working more hours um, in the the uh, wage labor market is a positive good, you know, regardless of whether that's in some sense voluntary or involuntary. Um, you know, the uh, judgment there is that if poor people aren't working, then they're not deserving. And so, if a policy program makes them work more, then that's a good policy program. And I don't need to explain why that is a horrific welfare economics uh, so the, extended to its extreme. The 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 raw scientific utilitarianism of of economists was somehow suspended. When it came to uh, well, poor the, people making their own decisions. I uh, mean, we, you know, it's funny to talk about the raw utilitarianism of economics because utilitarianism and um, the the uh, birth of, say, the modern economics uh, discipline in the 19th century always privileged forcing people to work as being in the public interest. I mean, this was the, um, uh, you know, kind of morality of the, the poor laws and why... Um, they were uh, bad, supposedly, because they caused people not to work. Um, and, uh, you know, so this uh, pathology of the EITC and its welfare economics, to my mind, is of long standing. And it's interesting how little it goes examined, in my, to my mind, in the public debate. Yeah, so there was a paper recently from Max Casey about this subject. It was at Data for Progress. But 
go- going back to the politics question, as I understand it, you, you know the, the inside story of, of Max Casey's paper uh, not being published by Roosevelt, which might uh, shed some light onto why we have four <laughs> policies now floating. Actually, there's a fifth one that I forgot to mention, which was Lynn Berman at the Tax Policy Center, I guess. Mm-hmm. He had a proposal that was to increase the EITC to $10,000. It would phase in at a dollar-for-dollar, dollar, 100% right. rate, and fund it with a 12% VAT, yep. which, of course, would r- really <laughs> squeeze the, the people who don't uh, uh, work uh, even harder than they already are uh, with that financing mechanism. But um, like, wh- wh- where is all this stuff coming from? What, what, whatever happened to uh, the, the UBI future, uh, the Silicon Valley was going to rush into D.C. and make this happen for us. They've got so much cash. Whatever happened to that? Why, why, are, why are we back into 1990s? Why are we reliving the 90s all of a sudden? Yes, because uh, D.C. could never change is essentially the, uh, the lesson in all of this. Um, so uh, the story here is that a couple of years ago, uh, Silicon Valley was very into um, this idea of the universal basic income. I think that was driven by um, what they viewed as the end of work and the uh, technological displacement of labor through the wonderfully sophisticated machines they're building that are apparently so great that none of us will have to work anymore. No um, more but, workers, only apps. Yes. Well. Look oh, at and uh, tunnels that can carry one car at a time <laughs> as long as that car is electric. Yeah. Yes. So uh, there was a lot of hand-wringing in Silicon Valley about um, the, uh, you know, our technology is so sophisticated, but there's a downside, the fact that people like their jobs and how are they going to uh, subsist in a world in which they're basically technologically unnecessary. Um, So we could talk a lot, obviously, about um, the uh, extreme elitism that would bring that, uh, (laughs) make that the sort of starting point of the analysis, but nonetheless, the solution to that was supposed to be uh, universal basic income um, that people would get from the government to essentially permit them to eat in the world where, um, other than that, the entire economy consists of Silicon Valley's wonderful apps uh, running everything. Um, so this organization, uh, 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 ESP, I think it's Economic Security Project, funded a bunch of research by Washington think tanks, including my former employer, the Roosevelt Institute, um, to examine the effect of uh, UBI in various ways. Um, and uh, one round of those uh, of that funding, at least with re- respect to the Roosevelt Institute, uh, funded a paper that I wrote um, with some colleagues from the um, Levy Institute at Bard College about the macroeconomic effects of UBI, um, which are uh, substantial. I mean, basically, it's a redistribution, redistributive policy from um, the government to uh, uh, cash-constrained individuals who have a high marginal propensity to consume. So, on any Keynesian uh, macroeconomic um, analysis that's going to cause the economy to expand. That's basically what that paper found. Um, and interestingly, presidential candidate Andrew Yang has been going around the country touting that paper um, <laughs> as showing that his policy proposal is great, even though uh, he's proposing to fund it with a VAT, which totally negates the entire point of the policy as far as I'm concerned. But um, so, so it goes. Um, and then another paper in that round was uh, was written by uh, my my uh, colleague, uh, Ioana Maradescu, about basically the, well, um, the labor supply effects of uh, giving people unconditional income, based right. in part on her research on the Alaska Permanent Fund and some other work that gets at that question of when when we sort of uh, exogenously uh, uh, give people more income, do they stop working or not stop working? And so that paper kind of reviews the literature on that and uh, 
you know, the answer is more or less most of the findings are that there's not a significant negative labor supply effect. Okay, so fine. <laughs> you know, that that's, as far as I'm concerned, perfectly uh, kosher, um, you know, think tank, raise money, do some interesting research, publish papers, blah, blah, blah. Um, the second round of research was significantly uh, more controversial because what happened in the meantime was um, that ESP conducted uh, some polling that supposedly showed that there is not public support for um, unconditional cash income um, for this deservingness issue. And the way to uh, negate the deservingness um, critique is to uh, condition income on work. So I think in part um, in due to that polling result and in part due to the sort of inter-think tank politics of D.C. where um, there's a lot of stored up um, uh, prestige in the EITC and its expansion and how great of a policy it is, um, the kind of the the uh, line from ESP switched from, uh, you know, UBI to EITC and its various permutations are are what we previously meant by UBI. So they're they're the same thing. Um, yes. We were previously, you know, the solution now to whatever you the problem UBI was supposed to solve, which you know again is, was not entirely clear uh, in the first round. Um, the solution to that is now the expansion of this program that's you know been on the books for a long time and has been kind of chewed around Washington for for decades now. So um, so so the apps cause total worklessness <laughs> and we're going to pay an income support benefit based on earnings which require work. <laughs> yes. It's the same thing though. Nothing it, has changed. It's yes. just a little, you know, more sophisticated. Yes. So as part of that, um, my uh, my friend and colleague Maximilian Kazi, uh, as as Matt previously adverted, wrote a paper um, that was essentially comparing the UBI to EITC on a variety of metrics um, about essentially um, you know the you know how do how do they kind of stack up um, when you put them head to head from a welfare economics perspective and. Um, a lot of the background for the paper that he wrote was um, some econometric work that he had done in a previous paper about the um, labor supply effect of uh, expansions of the EITC in the 1990s, um, and as well as the effect on wages when the EITC was expanded in the 1990s, um, to the point that essentially the uh, the, the kind of... Uh, equilibrium effect on wages of having this increase in labor supply to get wonky in economics terms uh, means that the net income effect of the EITC of the EITC uh, to uh, not necessarily its recipients but to uh, people who work in the same labor markets as its uh, recipients um, is is neutral, which means that the welfare effect is unambiguously negative. Because in other words, you're basically ca causing people to work more and end up with the same amount of income because their wages go down and their hours go up. And um, that's for, for the ones who don't receive the benefit but are working in the same yeah, labor market. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then the, and so the people who do receive the benefit, they're working more, their wages go down, but they've got you know, some cash from the right. Right. On top so of that. let's so, break let's break that down just just briefly. So the idea here is. We have this phase and it pays uh, 30 cents for every dollar you earn, but it only really applies for the most part for, with, to single mothers who have dependent children, right? That's mm -hmm. basically how it's set up, right? So they go into the labor market in, in huge numbers because they're incentivized by this. In theory, we'll get into that in a little bit. They go into huge numbers. Then in theory, the employers are like, oh, well, we've got all these workers. They're getting topped off by the state anyways, and there's way more coming in. I can afford to pay them less. Uh, but they don't just pay them less. They pay that whole job category less. So if you're a food service worker or whatever, that wage gets knocked down. 
but not everyone who works that job is a single mother with multiple children. It, there are young young people with no kids, older people. There, you know, so those folks, because they're in the same job category, they take the same wage hit that single mothers do with kids, but they don't get the top off of the EITC on the back end. So net negative even if the single mothers maybe wind up somewhat better off because they get the eitc which overwhelms the wage effect yes but and, and again even the people who are recipients have to work more to to receive that but yes that that's exactly the mechanism um the way i put it you know as a sort of thought experiment is that if the labor market consists of uh workers lining up to get a job um and there's a queue then uh basically the employer is in a position where he gets to pick and choose among the workers and if uh, they if workers don't get the benefit unless they are picked by the employer um, the employer can basically auction off the job to who's ever willing to give him the the biggest cut of the government benefit so right. you know that's how you get this kind of like everybody in the labor market suffers from the Ill, the, the negative effect on wages um, but not everybody benefits from the uh, the cash of the policy so get back to the politics of the policy or of the papers sure, and yeah. the inter think tank uh, issues. So Max wrote this uh, paper, um, which was perfectly fine uh, and, and you know even good, if I may say. Um, but nonetheless, notwithstanding that it went through the entire you know internal review process and you know was perfectly acceptable as a think tank paper, um, the publication of it was killed by the Roosevelt Institute precisely because the uh, kind of funder had changed their mind about um, you know whether we should be comparing UBI to EITC. Now EITC is UBI according to the funder, um, and we don't want to sort of put them. In opposition to one another we want to say that <laughs> the latter yeah you know so um so max did end up putting out that paper um it's excellent and i would suggest that you read it but you can see kind of written into that the um to my mind somewhat poisonous uh think, think tank politics about sort of what ideas are acceptable and what ideas are not acceptable in the public debate to and just i mean i would say in a larger sense you know a couple of years ago we had this kind of big uh a debate about job guarantee versus UBI, and then now there's Green New Deal, Medicare for All. You know, it's it's clearly a time when people are uh, thinking about big new policy departures because it's evident that the economy is not working very well for a lot of people, and there's uh, hunger in politics for um, major policy initiatives. And you know, it's just kind of depressing to me that like when any of this hits Washington and ends up getting perverted into whatever little box that kind of acceptable establishment policy positions, um, you know, will, will admit. So, you know, something like UBI that to my mind, it, you know, notwithstanding the kind of Silicon Valley nonsense is actually a good policy that should be considered, um, you know, ends up being like, oh yes, it's, this is actually the same thing as this thing that we favored all along. And all <laughs> of the research that you just did just shows that what I've been saying since 1995 is correct. I'll tell you, uh, uh, another anecdote from this, from, from the annals of the deep think tank world, which we're all involved into various degrees. The uh, Kamala Harris lift credit, uh, I, I gather, came out of this economic security project milieu. And uh, I was very baffled by this when I first saw it because I knew them to be a, a UBI thing, which is also strange because they don't publish their own things. They like work through the other think tanks. It's like a meta think tank almost. But um, and I, I did. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, I thought, you know, tech money UBI we're gonna we're gonna get something done or whatever and they were like well if you look closely 
it's yes, it does phase in based on earnings, but it also counts Pell Grants for students as earnings. <laughs> so it is a step in the direction because it includes students who don't work. And I was just like, <laughs> are you are you kidding me? Well, like, I mean, what are we doing? Just including Pell Grants doesn't include students who don't work or not. Right. Not nearly all of them. Right. Right. It's <laughs> it, it, you're not you're not paying for student labor if you're old, and, and and if you want to up top up Pell Grants, just top up Pell Grants. Why would you give them a second? I've got to go report to the IRS my Pell Grants in order to get, get a second benefit. <laughs> like what? Just, just double Pell Grants or whatever the hell you're trying to do. Like, th this would be the ridiculous program. But in their mind, they I, I feel like that's how they accommodated the fact that it's just a new I EITC. Is like, it's not. Actually includes the Pell Grant recipients. Um, but moving to Wait, sort can of... I get, yeah, go uh, ahead. Can, Back to the point about um, certain people benefiting more from the EITC than others. Isn't that not so much an argument against the EITC, but an argument for increasing the amount of EITC childless workers can get? So it's more on par with single mothers. So you don't have this uh, this like dichotomy between groups that win from the EITC and groups that lose. Uh, so I definitely support uh, creating parity, I guess, within the EITC program, but uh, uh, regardless of the number of children you have, I think that Matt has, um, you know, written uh, lucidly about kind of why, what the point of EITC is versus the mm -hmm. point of child uh, uh, support, you know, or, right. or, or uh, support for having children from the state. So I agree that it's kind of weird that we have, you know, kind of a child tax credit and we don't have a, a direct child benefit. And right. then we also have this sort of like other child thing that's baked into both, the EITC. Yeah. Um, so yes, but I also think that if... You know, I don't agree that like we'll ever kind of get to where we need to go from a um, uh, income support policy, redistribution policy, or let alone uh, kind of a wage stagnation mm -hmm. uh, uh, treatment policy through the vehicle of the ITC, where the the uh, yes or no on whether you get the benefits is up to your boss. Right, and it, it deserves pointing out that the ultimate consensus uh, version of this new uh, activity around this, the Working Families Tax Relief Act, which has, what, 48 co-sponsors, all Democrats or whatever in the Senate, does maintain the differences between children, even though it also has a fully refundable child tax credit in it. It's a very bizarre setup now where they're like, yes, it's ridiculous to uh, phase in child uh, benefits as our child tax credit does. So we're going to make that refundable. And they're like, oh, I see. So then the working, the the ITC is just going to be for workers. It's not going to be based on children, right? Because you've just uh, like, no, no, that's still going to phase in as well. <laughs> so it's like, what the right. hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> you're so close to just being like child allowance, EITC that has nothing to do with children. And then like, I would also be like, no, EITC, get rid of that as well. But, but whatever, at least there's some coherent aspect to it. Instead, they've maintained the structure, which is going to benefit, which is going to hurt workers who have lesser children than the average EITC recipient or whatever, like that, that's still the proposal for whatever reason. Um, and not because people People are aware of this, right? I mean, Jesse Rothstein, very smart, famous, you know, I mean, a famous, you know, what, what, like known guy at Berkeley, like, you know, like people are aware of this. And, and yet these designs keep popping out of CAP or CBP or wherever they go to get into the, into Congress. And, and I, 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 I find it so baffling. But but I wonder on the merits, right? So you, you, you know about there, there's a big question, I feel like that's at the center of uh, perhaps a, a coming pushback against the ITC and phase in, uh, phase in benefits in general. And that seems to be based on the question of, 
does this design where you get more benefit the more you work up to a certain threshold does that design actually cause people to work because that's the whole uh, deserving and undeserving that's the whole justification it gets more people working it's a little carrot you know that dangles in front of them to get them to work and i wonder you know kevin like what what have you seen about that you know historically any new developments you know just just run through that if, if you would. Sure, yeah. So there's a, a pretty big body of work, um, at least historically, uh, that the EITC um, causes single mothers to work more um, on the extensive margin, which basically means extensive is a choice between working and not working, whereas intensive is like how much you work. Uh, so there's a pretty big literature starting um, with a paper from uh, Aisa and Liebman, um, 1996, I think, um, that shows a pretty substantial extensive um, effect, which makes sense theoretically because you get more more benefits from working. So there's a, a um, so it, it makes sense, and then that pretty much no intensive effect. So no. Um, reduction in hours, even during the phase-out part, which you'd think, uh, based on economic theory, which we all know here is sacrosanct and has never been proven wrong, um, you'd th you think that um, as benefits decrease and you essentially face a higher marginal tax rate, you'd think that people would work less because they get less of a benefit from working. But there's been uh, lots of research that the only people who work less from uh, because of the EITC are secondary earners in married couples. Um, but in general, uh, there's been a, a lot of papers that analyze uh, different expansions of the EITC, either on the uh, national level or in states that show um, the number of people in the labor market, especially single moms, increases. Um, there was one paper, uh, who I forget the authors, but it analyzed uh, the EITC expansion in Wisconsin, um, which is unique uh, among state EITCs in that it provides no benefits for people without children, uh, which as we talked about is um, uh, questionable at best, but it does provide a good uh, quasi-experimental policy where um, the authors looked at um, this expansion comparing people with children to people without children, and they actually found that there was no uh, employment effect. But this kind of doesn't really get discussed uh, when people are talking about the own income tax credit. That kind of like is seen, I, I guess, uh, implicitly as an outlier among all these papers. Um, but there is a forthcoming paper, I guess, from um, Henrik Clevin. Heinrich Clevin. Yes, at Princeton, I think. Yes, uh, it's and Danish. He, I guess. he looks at a ton of ex uh, so his his slides for his paper are available, but the paper is not published yet. Um, but he basically looks at all of these expansions that other people have looked at previously and um, adds. Uh, some so for instance for the specifically for the Isa and Liebman paper, he looks he adds to their um, their regressions he adds uh, state effects uh, state welfare waivers and state unemployment rates and once he adds those in he finds that there's no um, no positive 
employment effect at all. So uh, this is once the paper comes out and goes through peer review and everything, that'll be a, a very interesting to see how that, uh, like, what kind of traction that gets and if that changes the, um, you know. Well, and so, and so to break that down, right, the, 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 what he does, right, is there's this finding that in the early 90s, in the early 90s, the EITC gets expanded. A lot of single mothers work a lot more right. after that. And then there's a question of trying to tease out why that was. Right. And, but the, the problem is that that occurred simultaneously with a number of other things, including states were given various waivers to crack down on unemployment insurance, crack down on, on certain rules around welfare. Uh, and then there also was, of course, a general economic expansion at the time. And so he controls for those implicitly right. uh, through the state unemployment rate and then also through just, you know. Whether you know, states had certain welfare wa waivers. waivers. And when he brings those in, it disappears. There's yeah, nothing yeah. left of it. I so. mean, I would, uh, sorry, I think we, it's also important to talk about the federal welfare reform. My understanding of the state welfare waivers is that they're sort of uh, – uh, previous to the federal welfare reform, essentially allowing states to enact it um, uh, to, to one degree or another in their own state policies. Um, and then in 1996, you get the federal welfare reform. So um, just to you know, contextualize all these different confounders, the point is that states are getting more punitive and then the federal government gets more punitive at kind of pushing people into the labor market. Right. So the, the effect of the EITC is supposedly to pull people into the labor market because they get more out of working. Um, but um, what we, we can't basically discern the labor supply effect of the pull of, uh, from the EITC separate from the push of the uh, welfare crackdowns um, and uh, unemployment insurance crackdowns. The other, I would say, piece of the, the Clevin um, analysis is that he looks at other expansions of the EITC that happened at separate times. So like the advent of the policy, I guess, in the 70s or, and you know, there was, I think there's something in the 80s that some other source of variation. Yeah. Yeah, there um, and then he looks at um, what there was like a, an expansion that affected um, people with three children only in yeah, like that, the 2000s or something like that. That was as part of the stimulus bill. Oh, they yeah. are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so you have these other EITC like expansion or EITC expansion like events happening at other times, not having a welfare effect right. or not having sorry not employment labor effect, supply yeah. effect um and uh and so that, that sort of raises questions like if it's the, this policy that caused uh workers to enter the the labor market in the 90s why didn't it, the same ver or versions of that right. policy also cause workers to enter the labor market at other times and then there was uh eight states he looked at that had state level eitc expansions he took the biggest state level expansions looked at those found nothing and then looked at the uk's working tax credit which is an equivalent to the eitc actually seems to be much more aggressive than the eitc i didn't know too much about it but when you when you look at the little graphs and stuff <laughs> it's 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 pretty impressive um and could, could not find uh could not find uh anything there as well yeah. so so i mean what i was saying before about the uh kind of ill effects of the eitc um, due to wage reduction for people who don't receive it, um, and and as well as you know wage reduction in labor markets more generally, so also for people who do receive it, um, you know that's sort of taking the labor supply effect as given and saying well it's actually not as effective an income support policy or redistribution redistributive policy um, as you said it was because workers are sucking in a large chunk of that. Uh, 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 money basically going supposedly going to uh, to workers but in fact going to employers um, if workers actually don't uh, uh, 
increase their labor supply, that sort of puts it in a different light um, as to kind of, you know, then the question is, well, is the policy even being effective kind of on its own terms? Right. If the point is to get people to work because the reason why poor people are poor is that they don't supply enough labor. So we'll enact this policy that incents them to supply more labor um, while it's not effective at doing it. Yeah, it it seems like if we go the path of saying that it doesn't increase labor supply, labor force participation, employment, then it really just becomes a very reactionary, conservative type of benefit that has very little theoretical basis for liberals within their value system. Because conservatives can still be like, I don't care if it increases labor supply at all. I want to give to people who work and so on. I don't want to give to people who don't. But the sort of liberal sort of fig leaf on this historically has been, look, I know it excludes people who don't work or who don't work very much. I'm very sad about that. It hurts me very, very deeply. But we have to contrast that with this trade-off where it does cause people to work more. And and so we kind of get a, a double dose. Not only do they get the benefit, but they also get higher wages and inclusion and so on. And if Clevin is right and it doesn't even do that, then you're in a position where liberals are like, like the justification just becomes like, well, I don't, this is all we can do. We can't do anything else politically and it sucks. Yeah. Like theoretically a basic income would be better because it doesn't even affect labor supply. So why would we ever cut off the bottom earners? Um, but, but so that I think will be the interesting ideological question. How do they adjust if this becomes the uh, consensus belief? How do they adjust their arguments for why we should do this if they can no longer be like, well, it increases labor supply? Well, I think you would, the first thing you'd have to think about is why does it not increase labor supply? Because if Clevin's right and it doesn't, the question is, okay, you're giving people at the maximum a few thousand more dollars to work like why does that not actually encourage them to work and um i think matt you've you've written about this i think part of the problem could be that because it's a tax credit you get it in a lump sum uh when you get your tax refund and it's really not clear like that you're getting it because you like it's kind of like yeah the the theory of <clears throat> the theory i actually i think it almost makes more sense to ask why would it incentivize right. labor force um i i see the graph yes it does go up as people work i understand that but take me through the more sort of sociological questions of how does someone understand this graph yeah. <laughs> uh, especially you know uh, say a single mother with two how did how does she come to understand this graph and then especially when we're talking about the early 90s like right away they somehow are are understand that the EITC exists i would bet less than 5% of people in the united states could tell you what the EITC is or give you any kind of coherent explanation of it and so it's hard to believe that it incentivized it on a like mental state level like an intellectual level where people are like oh i was reading the new york times today and the EITC there's this thing i guess i should go to work like that seems very unlikely to me so then the other explanation would be, okay, maybe it wasn't like a direct, they understood there's this new phased in tax credit and so on, but they came to realize it just through their lived experience that this thing was available. But then the problem with that is it's not paid out like 
in your paycheck. Right. You get it at the end of the year. It's mixed in with everything else. They're also receiving some amount of the CTC, the child tax credit, because they're in some of the phase-in zone there. They also probably overpaid some tax. They're getting some of that back. Like you have no, it would it would be incomprehensible. Right. <laughs> You don't get an itemized receipt for your taxes. No, it's, no, it's yeah. just a lot. This is the ITC, yeah. this is right. CTC. Well, and, and also I would say, you know, if I'm right about what I was saying before about it having a wage-reducing effect, then if anything, it would, you know, the, you'd be seeing less in your wage. Yeah, the paycheck. upfront experience yeah, is my paycheck's yes, gone down. Yes, exactly. Or, or you know, this job that, uh, you know, I, I went out and got is, you know, just not... Uh, affording me the standard of living that I had right. hoped it would. My friends told me this job paid 10 an hour. It's actually 9.30. What the hell happened? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so that's... And, and the other thing I thought was interesting about this, and you actually pointed this out to me, there is the question out there of... It, it is theoretically weird that it... it that the findings are that it causes people to go to work, but it doesn't affect their hours. Right. Um, like the, these two, you know, it's it's not binary benefit. It phases in and it phases out. Yeah. And so one of the questions was, why don't people, especially in the phase out zone, where the tax rate's actually really high, if you look at like... Yeah, the, um, the effective yeah. tax rate... It's extremely high. Phase out zone. It's well, uh, like uh, the, the OECD for 2018, you know, I use their like little tax calculator thing. They say a single parent with two kids who's in the phase-out period of the ITC, their marginal tax wedge is 52%. Mm. Um, so yeah. it's like, when we talk about increasing the top tax rate to 52%, people are like, uh, work's going to collapse. And it's like, right. well, th these people are getting hit with that right there. And like, yeah. uh, work doesn't collapse. Like, what's going on here? And the, the, the explanation in one of the papers of why people don't pull out during the phase out zone is well no one understands this benefit it's impossible to comprehend <laughs> it's like well wait a minute well, why does that cause it to work then like it's right. it can't be the, it's incomprehensible and that explains one phenomenon but it's comp but, but it also incentivizes people because i mean i think one thing that needs to be brought up here is um that neither employment nor hours are chosen by uh individuals in a, a labor market equilibrium. I mean, you don't even have to believe that the labor market is monopsonized to realize that, you know, supply and demand curves cross. If the labor market clears, it's there's still uh, a demand component to determining what the equilibrium level of employment is. Um, and uh, if the labor market is monopsonized, then, um, you know, the, <laughs> it's even more the case that your job boss decides how much you work and whether you do work or don't work. Um, so this idea that, you know, I mean, as, as to me seems to be prevalent in tax analysis of any kind or the analysis of, you know, the tax, the effect of marginal taxes on um, labor markets or on the macro economy um, is, you know, it is assumed that essentially employers play no role in determining um, how much you work, whether you do work or don't work and how many hours um, uh, in the long run, uh, you know, the only place that labor demand comes into play is in short run macroeconomic uh, fluctuations. That's just wrong. So, and, and um, you know, I think you get this a lot in kind of taxes up and down the income distribution where there just isn't the quote unquote real effect of taxes on any outcome that's a, that we're supposedly worried about taxes having a distortionary effect on, you know, what taxes affect is who gets what and not the amount of uh, real economic activity, whether we're talking about employment or investment or whatever. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the assumption that goes into any of these models is that all unemployment is voluntary. Yes. Um, and all, I suppose, foregone hours worked is voluntary. Yes. Um, 
But of course, if you've ever been in a job, uh, <laughs> it seems like the boss sort of prints the schedule and uh, it's a, you take it or leave it. And uh, if you leave it, uh, you probably will not find another job. So, right, right, uh, right. And I think, I mean, even even beyond the, so I think that's a, a apt description of labor market monopsony. I also think that it's important to recognize the sociology of how the labor market works and how people relate to it is that many people do or do not see themselves as workers in my mind and um, you can change whether they do or do not see themselves as a worker as I think was done to uh, basically single mothers in the 1990s regardless of whether it was EITC versus these other policies um, but more or less um, you know once if somebody is a worker say a prime aged male with children um, you know, they are going to try to find a job, at least they may not be employed at all times, but they're not going to withdraw their labor from the labor market and cease supplying it as a result of a 52% effective marginal tax rate. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a really key, the sort of cultural element to it, because, of course, preceding the increase in single mothers working in the early 90s, which appears to have been driven in significant part by pushes more than EITC pools, to the extent that it was not just driven by economic expansion, Preceding that, of course, we had women's labor force participation just ticking up and ticking up. And like there was no incentive on that. It was just a cultural change that was like, mm -hmm. yes, women work just like men work. And, 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 and so, you know, and uh, that seems as plausible an explanation as any others, whereas uh, single mothers were like, well, I, uh, you know, culturally, at least there was a sort of residual cultural notion of, well, I'm a mother and I, I, I take care of the kids and so on. And, and with, with some cultural messaging, it was like, no, no, we, even single mothers work. And in fact, especially, so. you know, the, I would say that with the interesting thing to study about these, um, uh, policies, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the author of a really good book, uh, about this, uh, that I, really, well, I shouldn't say I read the book. I, I listened to some good podcasts about it, uh, <laughs> good about, enough. about basically what the sort of reversal of the valence of sort of which type of woman should be working, um, to get back to a, a more retrograde one. So, um, you know, we kind of got this like, uh, in the, in the nineties, it was like, uh, you know, uh, middle-class mothers, um, you know, once, you know, and, and you can see actually the same guy, Clevin, has excellent analysis of the uh, uh, earnings penalty for having a child for women. Um, you know, once you're a mother, you're not supposed to be in the workforce, mm -hmm. basically, for middle class women or upper class women. But for lower class women, um, you definitely, you know, how dare you, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, care for your child when you have a child. You know, you better show up for work or else you're not one of the deserving poor. Yes, that that seems to remain the a certain kind of cultural conservative perspective. Uh, uh, yes, we must have the stay-at-home moms, but not uh, people of color or lower-class uh, women. Those people need to work. And one other anecdote on this, I, when I, way back in the day, when I was still in college, I was studying some similar sort of things, and I, I was interested in unions. You know, I went in, I became a union lawyer, and I was reading the... Uh, a. Philip Randolph's union, which was the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, you know, the train, the train guys, and uh, they had a uh, women's auxiliary and the women's auxiliary uh, was publishing uh, like demands, which was kind of interesting. Um, and of course, the union is almost all black. And so, you know, presumably the, you know, at the time, obviously, the, most of the spouses would have been black. And one of their demands was related to the rate of pay they wanted to pay to get high enough so that they didn't have to work anymore um because in their in that period the idea was well why do middle and upper class white women they don't 
have to work and I have to work and it's humiliating and so on. And, you know, obviously it's, uh, perhaps it's you know a bit of a reactionary, I don't know, element to that. But, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, it does go to show you that like that would be an absurd demand, of course, at this at this point in time. And so, you know, the culture of that. Uh, well, that actually change. goes back to the point I mentioned before about the very slight um, negative effect, uh, negative employment effect on the earned income tax credit on um, secondary earners who in a lot of cases, in most cases are women. And once their uh, spouses get get a higher earned income tax credit, they feel like they don't have to like make up that that amount. So I I think you're absolutely right that there's an element of um, uh, differentiated treatment um, culturally of like which women should be working in yeah. Well, and then fa- and famously, Obama uh, proposed a dual earner credit to solve that problem. Do you remember that? No, I don't. <laughs> yes. yeah. I remember this was a brief bit. It was, yes, we're going to have like for, for the second earner in a family, we're going to have a special oh. credit for them to offset uh, the fact that they're coming in at a har- higher marginal Marriage tax rate um, because, you know, they're inheriting their, oh you know, um, and uh, and I, I believe it was targeted at at that, which is kind of funny. Uh, and of course, the conservatives threw a fit. They're like, "Oh, this penalizes stay-at-home mothers and that sort of thing." Right. Which, like, I suppose it would, but like, also, you guys don't care about <laughs> low-income stay-at-home mothers. So. <laughs> but um, I was wondering. So, so what? You know, if 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 this seems to be a big thing, this seems to be where people are going, at least in certain like. What can we do to push back again? What What are the alternatives? I mean, of course, I have my ideas, you know, social democratic welfare state instead. But like, you know, are, are there glimmers of hope that we might not uh, just spend the next 10 years arguing about how best to do a second and third and fourth EITC? Um, that's a good question. I'm, I'm a little bit in a... a dark place in terms of my political prognosis at the moment, so perhaps <laughs> not the best time for me to answer that. Um, you know, I very much hope that, you know, some, that the uh, D.C. policy consensus can be cracked, more or less. I mean, I, I wanted to sort of bring up, actually, one point that I don't think we've really uh, drawn out here, but that I think should be, and I hope will have an effect on the policy debate, is this sort of move to ensure that all um, uh, income support for low-income people is conditional on work has had a profound regressive effect at the bottom of the income distribution. So it is it, what it means is that basically the absolute poorest people in, in the economy who don't work and earn no income from work um, have no other sources of income increasingly. Um, and yes. you know this book, $2 a Day, about the rise yeah. of extreme poverty in the United States really gets at that. And I was talking to a treasury economist a couple of years ago who you know essentially um, confirmed that in analyzing the EITC and other changes to to the sort of federal and state welfare regimes um, from the 90s to today, what you get is that um, you know about the same amount of redistribution is taking place now as 30 or 40 years ago, but it's not going to the poorest people. It used to go to the poorest people. Right it's now, I'm um, going you know somewhat above the poorest people in the income distribution. Yeah, I think um, uh, I think uh, Luke Schaefer has that. Robert Moffat did a paper on it, and then mm-hmm. Danilo Trisi at uh, CBPP oh, also yeah. showed that. And uh, yeah, the gist is. You cut AFDC, you cut UI, you get TANF, which might as well not exist. You get EIT, you know, the benefits move from the very poor to the merely poor. And actually, the very poor are worse off than they used to be 20 some odd years ago. Oh, yeah, by a lot. Um, And, you know, when you think we're seeing that in this, um, I mean, just 
you know, the spread of uh, previously uh, eradicated diseases and so on in the United States. Um, I think uh, hookworms coming yes. back. Yes. Ooh. Right. So I, not that Washington has ever been responsive to the needs of the very poor, um, but one hopes that that, among other things, like uh, such as um, you know, if uh, the climate analysis is worn out and other um, kind of. Uh, you know, just, I mean, it, it was interesting, you were saying, you know, all, apparently it's very popular in the Senate to propose or sign on to some, you know, re, um, complicated EITC expansion proposal, but we don't really see the presidential candidates, even the ones who have um, sponsored those proposals, talking about them all that much on the ca campaign trail. Yeah, and um, I remember uh, Sherrod Brown said the, the next campaign is going to be about tax credits, and of course he's dropped out of the uh, race at this point, so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so, uh, I, I, you know, one hopes that the sort of the the uh, policy debate is, you know, many steps behind the politics, uh, in my view, and that at least will be uh, drawn to catch up. So, Matt, you asked, you know, kind of like, is there any um, sort of alternative on the horizon, or are we just going to be debating the ITC forever? I mean, I think this is a debate worth having. I've, um, you know, back a year or two years ago when there was all this talk about EITC, or sorry, UBI versus uh, jobs guarantee, um, my view is why not both, basically. I think that those two things plus an, incre an increase in the federal minimum wage to $15 or even higher potentially um, constitute a tripartite uh, comprehensive policy for uh, uh, income support at the bottom of the income distribution um, and uh, 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 employment for people who want to work at uh, good wages. And I think that that increase in um, both labor demand um, and you know, coming from the sort of jobs guarantee side, plus the insurance against the wielding of monopsony power coming from both uh, the UBI and the increase in the minimum wage um, uh, constitutes a, a, a sound policy agenda that I think that the um, you know progressives should be uh, getting behind, and I think it, it it should be explicitly posited that that tripartite agenda is in contrast to the failure of the ITC. What, what about you, Kevin? Uh, so I'm not <laughs> quite as ready to get rid of the EITC yet. Um, I think, uh, Matt. I what would you add on to it? So let me. Okay, so you wrote a piece. You've you've written um, about who are non-workers mm -hmm. in America, um, and it's mostly elderly people trying to find a job, disabled uh, people, disabled people students, children. children. Yeah, that's like eighty percent of it. Yeah. So I think that if you we do not do a good job right now of taking care of any of those groups, except maybe elderly people with um, social security, but especially children and disabled people and students and and um, unemployed people, if we were to increase benefits for those groups, I don't think that an earned income tax credit that didn't take into account the amount of kids you had, but um, but was still a benefit for people who worked, I don't think that would be a bad thing. I don't think um, that if the if the bottom of uh, if the bottom of the income distribution, the people who can't work or aren't working for reasons that we don't think they quote unquote should be um, working, if they're taken care of through separate programs, I don't think. Um, that the that we should get rid of the EITC. Um, I don't think it. I don't think the EITC is is a solution for wage stagnation, but it does help to people who get it, even if it doesn't help them as much as the absolute amount they get from the 
credit says because their wages are a certain percent less. But um, if and if we could think of a way to reform it so it's not just part of what you get every once a year as part of your tax refund, if we could think of a way to improve that um, and that we don't rely on it as basically the only or one of the only um, safety net programs we have, I think it could be worthwhile. All right. Well, you know, I in my uh, family fun pack paper, I uh, I do maintain an EITC, though it is dramatically shrunken. Mm-hmm. Um, that was actually my my third way fig leaf. I was like, you know, I'm actually yes. being very moderate. Well, I know so. that the uh, the fancy funders that are pulling your strings demanded <laughs> that you include that. I knew if I didn't, that it would just be the whole thing would just be distracted by people being like, he got rid of the EITC. Oh my God, he, this is the greatest. But I was like, okay, I'll just keep it at like. Well, we'll there just were. Some home. people who were confused and thought you had gotten yeah. rid of the Well, EITC. there were some people, yeah, uh, my haters online who right. were like, he's gotten rid of the, the childless EITC. <laughs> and it's like, I have quadrupled <laughs> the childless the EITC. Um, it's, it's, the, uh, it's the ones with children that are down. But, of course, they get the child allowance. So right. they're, they're much better off on net. Uh, I actually... I, I don't know. I don't like the EITC as a general structure. I, I would tolerate it like being smaller, especially if we remove the child components of it. Right. Um, I do think that, yeah, like if, if you if you take, why well, how about free child care? I mean, <laughs> if you want single mothers to work, uh, yes. this is a pretty straightforward process. I mean, I think this gets to the, uh, the, the, the crucial issue. And this is why I feel like monopsony changes everything, which is why I talk about that all the time um which is you know the the parameters of what's allowed as a policy proposal are uh, entirely determined by permitting employers to continue to exercise monotony powers so if what you really cared about was women supplying labor to the formal labor for to the to, to the formal um uh, economy then absolutely what you would do is have a a, a free child care um, as you've proposed, um, but the fact that actually the only you know kind of policy that we're allowed to contemplate to get women to supply labor to the uh, uh, formal labor market is one that is mediated through monopsony power. Basically, your employer decides whether you get the benefit or not, versus one that's independent of, and and thus strengthens um, uh, worker power vis-a-vis their employers in the labor market. Um, you know that's that's like the sum total of what we're allowed to consider. Um, right. So that I mean, it really bothers me that. Um, you know, we ha- we're to uh, talk about something like, um, you know, whether uh, women are, are uh, kind of allowed to or welcomed into the formal labor market or whether it's good or bad that um, that there's increasing women's labor supply um, without talking about kind of the uh, overall structure that says, you know, the reason why, um, you know, women are discriminated against in the labor market, why there's a gender wage gap is because they are more exploitable by their employers. Like that's really where the action is. If we, if that's the policy outcome that we care about. Right. Yeah. Make it more tempting to work. Uh, that doesn't just, uh, involve, uh, these, these weird tax credits, but involve um, making the work uh, more enjoyable, making it higher paying, make it so that maybe they're not being sexually harassed. Uh, there are a lot of, uh, pools that you can do that aren't, this I, I, I as a close the, the other thing I think about here you know I always go back to Sweden in the 70s and 80s you know that's the the golden the golden society uh, in many ways um, and you know their approach seemed to be very sensible to me which was all right look uh, every job is 
the, the wage or our, our minimum wage in society is going to be like a pretty decent wage. Like you can live pretty well on it. And of course, if you have kids and stuff, we, you got child allowance and you got free health care. Like it'll be good. And, and to the extent that it's too high and like disemploys people, uh, well, the people who are disemployed temporarily, of course, they're going to get unemployment benefits and stuff they're going to be taken care of. And then we'll have active labor market policies that can uh, get them ready to go for, for those kinds of jobs for people who may be very difficult to employ. And that, that seems to be, to be a better (laughs) setup than this sort of sliding scale tax credit that employers get to capture and degrade other people's wages. And, you know, it seems, to be a much more liberatory approach that achieves the same uh, sort of outcome. But, you know, like I said, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm in the middle uh, uh, because you, you, uh, Marshall has the, has the strongest, uh, uh, you know, he, he, he is hot about the ITC. Let's yeah. get rid well, of this it's, thing. It's always bothered me since I learned what it was. <clears throat> I remember hearing about this in undergrad and thinking like, you know, the, and basically it was presented to me as like, oh, this is, you know, a policy that all economists agree are is, uh, you know, the best possible policy. And in those days, the, the argument that was put forward for why it was good was because it mitigated the uh, enormous effective marginal tax credit at the phase out region, ra- region rather than have it be, you know, like a gazillion percent. It's 52 or whatever right. you said it was. Um, and uh, this is supposedly, you know, very sound economics replacing the stupid old policy of, uh, you know, straight up means test. Uh and, uh, you know, I was just like, no, that's terrible. I mean, that's that's a, a policy that, uh, you know, allows uh, your, you know, your employer to decide. And, you know, I mean, it's it, it just kind of drops right out of looking at the structure of the policy that, um, you know, if you don't believe that people just get to choose the job that they have on the labor market and the wage that they earn. But in fact, that is, you know, mo- more uh, determined by your employer and what jobs you, you know, can kind of obtain uh, through your social networks. And, uh, you know, it's just not a policy that anybody would ever support. And the idea that, um, you know, it's a total consensus among economists is just, uh, uh, you know, uh, viscerally uh, disturbing to me. And so I felt the need to counterbalance the weight of every other economist yeah. who all agrees and in the an enormous consensus, this is the best design policy that has ever been conceived that I have to be way out on the other side of the seesaw. Yeah, you got to shift the Overton window, as they say. <laughs> no, I, I agree. It, it is viscerally disgusting. I the, uh, the the phase in graph in my brain, I just look at it and I just, you know, in my mind's eye and I'm just I'm just infuriated by it. But I, I gather you, you have a slightly that that was the thing that pissed me off. The thing that pissed you off was, oh, this is yet another way for the employer to jerk you around. Not unlike employer sponsored insurance or any of these other things. Yep. It's like, huh, why can't we take care of people separate from this instead yes. of having everything yes. run through these guys? Right. I mean, you know, work is something that most people have to do. I mean, I like writing <laughs> economics papers and I don't like supplying labor to the formal labor market. So, <laughs> uh, you know, just imagine for people who, you know, whose job description is very different. So, um, you know, I just I mean, any any notion of welfare that treats uh, people equally in any respect, I don't see how you could possibly um, you know, be attracted to this policy. Right. But I do ultimately somewhat I'm like in terms of, uh, you know, compromise and so on. All right. As long as we strip out the child parts of it and we don't like expand it and like spend a lot of time on that, it's fine. Whatever. Like w- w- it doesn't take up that much space, you know. And so I, 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 I 
you know, you, you saw the family fun pack. I, I, <laughs> I, I uh, the, uh, the happy medium is cut it a lot, but, but keep it so that the people who love it will not freak out at you. Um, but I respect the actually just uh, a pure, no, this is shit and we shouldn't do shit things. Like, I, I actually, well, I, you know. I, so I, I, I will t- I, I reel that back in by one notch, which is a few years ago I read uh, an article about uh, by Jason Furman, you know, more or less a, a, a comprehensive defense of the EITC, so more or less something that I wholly disagreed with, but he did make one point that I thought was was good, which is, you know, to an extent that I hadn't kind of previously realized, we used to, the u- income tax used to fall more heavily on poorer people than it does. So the by enacting the EITC, we basically made it so that poor people, you know, it's actually, you know, I would say it's something, and isn't, that, isn't this where Mitt Romney's 47% comment sure, came yeah. from, is that like only right. the top 50% or something like that of wage earners actually pay the income tax. Now, of course, they pay Social Security and Medicare taxes and sales tax, for God's sake. Um, but... <laughs> Um, you know, so so I don't I don't think that we should be taxing the poor. So insofar as the EITC makes the tax the income tax liability of the poor zero or or, or negative, I mean liability, so it's negative. So anyway, they're getting money as opposed to paying money to the government. Um, that's good. I don't want to go back to a world in which there is actually uh, 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 marginal taxes levied on the poor. Right. Yeah, sure. Negative taxes. Levied. So yes, because people without children right now are are, are the only people who are taxed. Or, or poor people without children are the only people who are taxed further into poverty because the they don't have the, the EITC is small. so yeah. small for yes. people without children. Yes. Right, right. So we shouldn't be taxing people into poverty. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> the the if your factor payments get out, get you out of poverty, that should at least be enough. Uh, <laughs> You're right. Though, though I think that, and I I got into this a little bit with with uh, Mr. Berman. Uh, there are some very exotic families. I, they're actually not that exotic, but. People don't think about them like okay. Let's say I'm a people sing- in D.C. who people have see this very model. Conventional families. Yes, my theory of why policy sometimes looks why poverty policy is sometimes confused is everyone has in their mind uh, 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 a working age family, maybe one earner, maybe two earners with some kids, and they don't realize that if you go into the CPS and you just sort of start browsing the families, it's like, well, I don't know. Here's a Here's a 20-year-old uh, woman, and she lives with her disabled mom and also this other uh, guy who's unemployed. And, like, <laughs> like right. I don't, like, what do you make of this? Like, she's probably taxed into poverty and probably would continue to be taxed into poverty, even though people would say, oh, no, it doesn't, because under our model, if she had such and such kids, and it's like, well, she does. She's living with, like, an uh, unemployed friend or something, <laughs> like, it, it, you know, so... You know, I tend to, you know, obviously tend towards saying, well, let's individualize the benefits a little bit more. The unemployed right. person should have some unemployment benefit. The disabled mom should have some disabled benefit. That doesn't matter what kind of family structure you have. Um, but, but that's a well. A, that, a don't you know that uh, getting married causes poverty to be reduced, as the success sequence tells us? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> Unless your spouse is a non-worker. Yes. In which case. And and getting getting plurally maridly married <laughs> even more so um, if you you know think about it it must it must logically they never take it to that level what about it's three wives or four effect. wives <laughs> all right well this was great uh, thanks thanks for coming on uh, I think it'll be very educational and and maybe have some sort of impact in the in the discourse we'll see um, thanks guys thanks Matt thanks this is-